Hey, y'all, good morning. Well, Psalm 23 is where we're going to be. If you want to begin to turn your way there. If you don't have a Bible with you today, or if you don't have a Bible, at the back of the room, underneath the giant shot clock, is uh, a couple of handful of Bibles there for you. Um, So if you don't have a Bible, that is a gift of Collective Church to you, or if you just forgot yours today, that's for you. And there's oatmeal on my Bible. So if you're wondering what it's like to be a dad, you find oatmeal all over the place. Well, Psalm 23 is where we are, as uh, today we're continuing in our fourth week of this series that we've been in called Church of the Good Shepherd. And as we just celebrated our seventh birthday, and as we move into a new year, we've been taking some time to make our way through uh, one of the most profound, popular passages in all of Scripture, Psalm 23, as an opportunity for us as a community to get a vision of God as our shepherd and what it means for us to journey through the life of faith with him. And so today, like I said, Psalm 23 is where we're going to be. And if you have uh, your Bibles turned open there to Psalm 23, would you join me in standing for the reading of God's word? And so before we read, uh, let's pray. Father, we pray that you would continue to open up our, our minds and our hearts Would you clear the way for a walk with you as our shepherd? God, today as we move further into this psalm, we pray that you would, God, comfort those of us in the midst of loss, God, that you would be with us in the midst of our confusion, that you would make known to us your presence even when it feels like you're absent. And so come, Holy Spirit, would you speak, speak to us today? Psalm 23 Beginning in verse 1, I'm going to invite you all to read with me today out loud. And so let's begin. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. We'll go ahead and be seated. During the journey of life, the adventure, the trek along the trail of life with God as our shepherd, sooner or later we come into a strange new landscape. As we look out over our lives, the green pastures and quiet waters that we formerly knew have now been replaced with what we're looking at today in verse 4, the darkest valley. It's a season where the previous signs of the shepherd's leading no longer seem present to us. And in many ways, it can feel just like the wilderness that we had been brought out of. And so in many ways, as we make our way into this season where the quiet waters and the, the, quiet waters and the green pastures have been gone, it can lead us to wonder, is, maybe I'm regressing in the faith. Maybe I'm moving backwards and no longer forward. The darkest valley is a place that can feel spiritually dull and colorless. It's a time in our lives when we find ourselves, just the the vitality of ourselves feeling dry. We feel weary and we 
lose motivation for the walk with our shepherd. In many ways, it's a time where we can feel cut back, as though God is in this time absent from us, that God maybe was with us formerly but now has abandoned us, or that he was never real to begin with. And we begin to settle into this darkest valley season, this wild and waste place is now the new normal. What is the valley of darkness? Well, the word darkness in the Hebrew can be translated as the valley of gloom, or some of your Bibles might have the, uh, the valley of the shadow of death, or the valley of deep darkness. It's actually a fairly rare word in the Hebrew that the psalm was originally written, only showing up 18 times in the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, and 10 out of those 18 all happen within the book of Job. If you've read through the book of Job, you know it's a story of tremendous loss and an amount of suffering that overtakes a man's life that seems to have no purpose, and in it all, he feels as though God is absolutely distant from him. Knowing that the Bible interprets itself, when we wonder what the darkest valley is, is even when I go through the, the Job moment of my life, tremendous loss paired with a seeming absence of God. But the problem is, is that like Job's friends, if you've read through the book, when we begin to share our experience with our fellow flockmates within the church, our you know, spiritual family, as Lorenzo just mentioned, the problem is that so often what we find is that we are either shamed or sermonized in the midst of the darkest valley. That as we share what we're experiencing, the assumption is you must be wandering. And so you just need to repent your way back to the green pastures in those quiet waters. But unlike last week, as we look over our lives, we find no discernible lack of faith, lapsed faith, or a lukewarm faith. In fact, just the opposite. It's our faithful following of the shepherd that has brought us to this place. It's an experience that's detailed for us, not just in verse 4 of Psalm 23, but all of chapter 22, just one page over. Psalm 22, David says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far from deliverance and from my words of groaning? My God, I cry by day, but you don't answer, and by night I have no rest. He continues on, I am a worm and not a man. I feel scorned by all. People see me and mock me. I have lost all of my strength. The experience of the darkest valley can leave us wondering, what is wrong with me? If there's no sense of repentance that I need to go on, but it seems like I followed God into this, what is wrong with me? It's a sort of experience, it's the kind of questions that are mirrored in another psalm just a few pages over. In Psalm 42, you'll see behind me. As a deer longs for flowing streams, so I long for you, God. I thirst for God, the living God. When can I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while all day long people say to me, where is your God? look back and I remember this as I'm pouring out my heart, how I walked with many, leading the festive procession to the house of God with joyful, thankful shouts. Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? And then the psalm continues, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about in sorrow because of the enemy's oppression? My adversaries taunt me as if crushing my bones while all day long they say to me, where is your God? Why, my soul, they repeat, why, my soul, are you dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Why am I so dejected? Why am I in such turmoil? What is wrong with me? Why am I going through the darkest valley? 
For those of you here today that resonate with any word of this, or for those of you that know someone that this does, today I just want to begin with a prompting question, something to open us up with when we think about the darkest valley. What if you are right where your shepherd wants you? And what if the darkest valley is just as much the right paths of the shepherd as the green pastures and the quiet waters? This seems to be exactly the case as verse 4 opens with what? Even when I go through the darkest valley. Even when. Not maybe if. Not in the, the potential likelihood that maybe something might happen where I'll go through the darkest valley. Not if I go through the darkest valley. Not maybe when I go through, uh, but even when. It is part of the journey that the shepherded life entails. There is no shepherded life, Psalm 23 life, apart from sooner or later a darkest valley moment. And so David's basic assurance that he says, I fear no danger in the darkest valley, is a statement of trust that though he may feel otherwise, he has not been abandoned. That though this season is dark and mysterious, David trusts and invites us to trust that God is leading us through it. And so today, rather than causing and casting like a taboo kind of weird feeling around the darkest valley or shaming or isolating some of you that are here or providing some misdiagnosis that you just need to repent your way out of the darkest valley, my hope today is provide a vision for an understanding of this part of the journey as a vital one in the life of following the good shepherd. Because all who embark on the Psalm 23 life sooner or later will find themselves in verse 4. Everyone who embarks on a life of discipleship in the way of Jesus sooner or later will find him leading us here. All of you have gone through the darkest valley, are currently going through it, or will go through it at some point. Happy Sunday. (laughs) One spiritual director I read this week estimated that 20% of every given congregation has people going, 20% of the congregation is going through their darkest valley at some point. I was talking to my spiritual director, Jim, this week and picking his brain on, is the darkest valley a one-off moment or does it happen regularly over the course of the li- you know, their life? And he said it's somewhere between it happening once and maybe a few more than that. This isn't every Tuesday. This isn't every, you know, you sitting in traffic in the 405. That is not your darkest valley. And it's not even an annual rhythm that we go through, but there are key moments in our life, somewhere between one and, you know, we're not going to make a rule. But everyone at some point, sooner or later, at least goes through this once. And so for us to be the church of the good shepherd means we need to normalize the darkest valley. We need to anticipate and understand this so that as we go through it or one another and we see our brothers and sisters going through it, we don't shame, we don't sermonize, but we hold in comfort in the midst of this part of the journey. Because for us to see the darkest valley rightly means that we see it as the transition point between the two fundamental stages of the life of faith. We could see this alluded to even in the ordering of Psalm 23. The first stage, the first um, season of faith is is detailed in verses 1 through 3. It's the life of being brought back from our wandering and being led on the right paths and enjoying the green pastures and quiet waters. It is this, this active walking in and following the shepherd, this intimate experience of him. And the second stage, on the other side of verse 4, is verses 5 and 6. Us sitting down at a table with our shepherd. Our enemies have now been conquered. We have now been anointed and set apart. Our cup is overflowing. And as verse 6 
says we're dwelling in the house of the Lord as long as we live. There is the journey of following the shepherd and the journey of being established and being with him. And verse four is the transition point. This is what Jesus um, alludes to in the end of John's gospel, his conversation with Peter. When you were young, you dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. And then when you're old, you will be dressed and you will, your hands will be outstretched and you will be carried where you don't want to go. This is the language of both Paul and the letter of Hebrews of the early first stage of discipleship being that of milk and the second one being of meat. This is Psalm 130. Uh, Psalm 130 and its language of the, 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 the person of God as a nursing child and then as a weaned child. One of active faith and spirituality versus a passive just receiving and enjoying what we have. This is what Ronald Rollheiser, these two stages talked about as being essential and mature discipleship. In essential discipleship, we're struggling to get our lives together. And in mature discipleship, we're struggling to give our lives away. And the way that you move from step one to step two is through the darkest valley. Now, there's far more to say about stage theory and discipleship and what we find within the scriptures. But here's the main thing for today. The way, the transition, the point of turning the hinge from first stage discipleship to second stage is through the darkest valley. That's where God does the work to get us ready and to move us into that second stage. And without going through it, we will turn back and continue to just repeat the same things over and over again. This is why you found people in churches that are towards the end of their life and they've been going every single Sunday and yet they still are spiritually, emotionally, relationally immature. They never press through the darkest valley. And so though the darkest valley is not forever, we don't leave the first stage of discipleship without a shakeup. We don't leave the green pastures and the quiet waters, and we don't find ourselves at the table dwelling in the house of the Lord forever without the verse four journey. And this transition, this darkest valley, is something that shakes us up and propels us deeper into the life of God than we could ever have gone by ourselves. And it is normally a transition that is triggered by something traumatic in our lives. Some examples of this might be the death of a close friend or a family member. It might be a marriage shaken or a marriage that outright ends. It could be a church implosion, a shattered lifelong dream, coming to terms with a chronic illness or a wayward child. It could be awakening to past abuse that we've suffered and never really saw that was part of our story. It could be infertility, betrayal, or simply reaching the point of our life where we begin to kind of put our life together based off the framework that was given to us growing up, and now we're wondering, is this it? It's one of the reasons that the darkest valley has been referred to as a midlife crisis. There's far more going on in that than just buying a Harley. <laughs> but what's going on there is we're entering into the darkest valley, and we're coming to terms with who I am. And we can either follow the shepherd through it, or we can return back to immaturity. It's a, these traumatic moments, it's a loss that drives us to our knees. It leaves us gasping, and we consider abandoning everything as a hope for escape. And so the terrain of the darkest valley is not that of a laxed, lapsed, or lukewarm faith. It is the terrain of tremendous loss. And it's tremendous loss that's paired with a felt absence of God's presence. Not the absence of God's presence, but our feelings of his presence with us. We'll get back to this more in a moment. We say, like the psalmist, why have you forgotten me? Now, there are many names, like I alluded to a moment ago, for the darkest valley. Some uh, spiritual writers would call it the desert. 
Others might allude to it as a midlife crisis. Some have called it the wall. St. John of the Cross and Teresa of Avila in the 16th century Spain referred to it as the dark night of the soul. This is the moment when we go into tremendous pain and as we look to God, he's not there in the ways that he was in the past. And now, this is so crucially important here because I don't want you to mishear me. This is not, hear me, that God causes the circumstances that trigger the darkest valley. God doesn't kill your family member. He's not the one that gave you some chronic illness. God's not the one doing this evil and suffering that's being brought on you. But rather, in light of what Paul writes in Romans 8, this is him working all things together for our good. The suffering and the pain of our life arises from human choices and living in a broken and fallen world. And yet God, rather than just going, I don't know, uses those moments and those times to take us deeper into himself than we could have ever gone before. And so this is what David's getting at when he says, though I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you are with me. You are here still shepherding in the midst of this. I'm not lost, but you're here guiding me. Though you are guiding me in a new way. You see, in Psalm 23, verse 4, the experience of David and what the shepherd is doing is moved into a new form of shepherding. It's no longer the direct forms of shepherding that he experienced in verses 1 through 3. In verses 1 through 3, what was the experience of the shepherding? You renew me. You bring me back. You throw me on your shoulders and you bring me home. The experience of your shepherding is green pastures and quiet waters. It's a direct form of shepherding. But in the darkest valley, the comfort of David is not in those direct forms of shepherding because those aren't bad, but there's a different form of shepherding that happens here, not through direct means, but indirect signs of his work. And what are they? Your rod and your staff. The comfort of David in the darkest valley is not you're carrying me through it. It's not you're like holding me all the way through. It's those little things like a rod and a staff. So what, what are these? If you'll allow me to detail what a rod and a staff are and why they are a comfort in the darkest valley. The first comfort in the darkest valley, like I said, is for David, your rod. And so what's a rod? It's a weapon against predators and thieves. It was a two and a half uh, foot long stick with a mace end, like mace-like end, that they would affix pieces of iron into it. And so it was the shepherd's primary weapon. In uh, 1 Samuel 17, when David's recounting his years as a shepherd, he talks about going against and striking a bear and a lion. He talks about catching a lion by the beard and, you know, bludgeoning it to death with this rod. It's like, go David, right? We read like Psalm 23. He's like, the Lord is my shepherd. It's like, this dude killed lions. Um, and so the whole point is it's, it's, it's close combat, and, it's, and it's, it's, a, it's the weapon of the shepherd for beating off the predators and thieves that would seek to take the sheep away. And in the darkest valley, what does it mean for us to be comforted by the rod of God our shepherd? Is in the darkest valley, God strikes at those predators which stalk us all of our days. God gets into close quarters combat of this tiny little valley to go toe to toe and to deal with the things that have been stalking and following us and seeking to make us its prey all of our lives. And so the question is, what are those predators? What are the things that God is dashing to pieces here in the darkest valley? It can't be loss because that's the terrain. It can't be sickness that God's striking down here because that's what we're moving through. What's the, what's the predator? What's the thief that's coming to steal us that he deals with? There's different language we could use for this. The desert fathers would have re referred to it as those inner demons that we have within us. 
For those of you that come from more like reformed background, we would call this the idols of the heart. Or maybe in more therapeutic language, it's our compulsions. Like those inner drivers that bring about mixed motivations and keep us from the life God has for us. Gerald May, in his book, On the Dark Night of the Soul, writes, see behind me, regardless of how a compulsion appears externally, underneath it is always robbing us of our freedom. We act not because we have chosen to, but because we have to. We cling to things, people, beliefs, and behaviors, not because we love them, but because we're terrified of losing them. The classic spiritual term for this compulsive condition is attachment. Each of us has countless attachments. We're attached to daily routines, our environments, our relationships, and of course, our possessions. We're also attached to our religious beliefs and to our image of ourselves, others, and God. In a spiritual sense, the objects of our attachments and addictions become idols. We give them our time, energy, and attention, whether we want to or not. Even, and often especially, when we're struggling to rid ourselves of them. We want to be free, compassionate, and happy. But in the face of our compulsions, our attachments, our idols, our demons, we are clinging, grasping, and fearfully self-absorbed. This is the root of our problem. You see, regardless of whether or not the shepherd has brought us back from the wilderness in verses 1 through 3, in verse 4, God goes toe-to-toe to find that even though we've come out of the wilderness, we still have a predator or predators that are pursuing us, seeking to drag us back from the life that God has for us. We spend our lives pursued as the prey of our own attachments, the things that we need, the things that we think that we need to live a happy life. Again, whether you want to use language of idols or like the desert fathers of demons or as Thomas Kelly, the emotional programs that we have for our happiness. We all have something that's, for those of you that have read C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, it's the lizard on the shoulder, the little thing that we think that we need to live, that if we think, if we let go of it, we will die. In the darkest valley, those things are taken from us and put to death and we realize there's actually life on the other side. And so we have to go through the dark valley to deal with these things because, as May notes, we struggle to get rid of them ourselves. And that's why many of these predators are untouched and undealt with in the first stage of our discipleship. We simply don't see them. And we don't realize these compulsions that are driving us through. But in the darkest valley, God wields his rod not at us in discipline, but he wields his rod to purify our hearts, to purify the inner longings of ourself, what some authors would refer to as the purgation of the soul, bringing up and taking out those compulsive attachments which keep us from the life that God has for us. And this happens as the darkest valley disrupts our routines, our environment, our relationships, and even our possessions. And so God uses the darkest valley, working it together for our good, to shatter those things, for us to see how hollow and empty they are, and then to see those things now with a new view of what uh, Evagrius referred to as the hatred, and we see them as our enemies. We, we realize that these things that I thought I needed to live are actually the things that have been keeping me from the life that God has for me. And so then on the other side of the darkest valley, what is opened up for us is a greater love for God alone as the sole attachment, the worthy attachment of ourselves and our souls. And we see how worthless those little trinkets and idols, those little whispering demons were that we needed fill in the blank in order to be happy and alive and satisfied. 
But equally, the darkest valley disrupts our feelings from God, our ideas of God, and our obedience to God. You see, when we walk into the first stages of life, there is a, a youngness, an immaturity to the work that we do. And we are prone to equate the feelings that we get from God with God himself. We are prone to equate our ideas, our theological vision of God with God himself. And we think we, our obedience to God is actually our obedience to God as opposed to just these mixed motivations that we have. And in the darkest valley, when those things get taken away, we have to confront the fact that we have been following God with mixed motivations. That what I've actually loved is not God, but the feelings that he gives me. What I love is not my shepherd himself, but the green pastures and the quiet waters. What I love is my, my faith is not in God, but in my little theological categories and systems for him. What I love is not God, obedience to God for God's sake, but, but as a, an, a little outlet for my own self-righteousness. The dark valley causes us to see these things. And on the other side, we begin to not run away from faithfulness to God or, chasing, or, or, or desiring those experiences or theology and orthodoxy, we hold those things so much more humbly. We're able to pray for an experience of God in new ways, but we receive it with humility, knowing that, that my love for the shepherd doesn't depend on it. We're able to study theology and walk within, you know, you know orthodoxy of the Christian faith, but with a humble posture. We're able to, to move into obedience and following God, but no longer is our own self-righteousness, but, but following God for God's sake. You see, in the darkest valley, God smashes those attachments, those idols, that pride. He purifies us for a humble love. And as he does this, through the rod being wielded, our desire for the world begins to wither. The, just going through the darkest valley will take away the enjoyment that you get from food and drink, from friends or from your work or from a night out. The, the idols show themselves for what they are. The demons take the mask off, and you see that these things are empty promises. And similarly, as this happens, your desire for God increases, even though at this time that desire is not yet satiated. In the words of Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you. This is the work of the purification that the darkest valley brings about. And so for David and for us, this is a source of comfort. This sounds awful, does it not? And yet David looks at the, a rod. I mean, you think about a sheep. If you're walking through a dark valley and all of a sudden you see the shepherd start swinging his rod around, that's a terrifying sight. And yet for, for David as a sheep, looking back on his experience, he goes, that became my comfort. That as I saw idols being taken away, I received that as part of the darkest valley. And I said yes and amen to those things. Those became my source of comfort. That, that means the shepherd is still shepherding me. If I was going through the darkest valley and my desires for the world were going up, then that should be the sign that I'm going the wrong way. But the fact that they're dwindling means that the shepherd is still at work. And so the first source of comfort is the rod. The second, he says, is his staff. And what is a staff? It's the identifying marker of the shepherd. By the staff, the sheep are able to look and identify, that's my shepherd. The guy with the staff, I'm his and he's mine. And similarly, the shepherd is able to identify himself to the sheep. He uses it to remind the sheep who he is. The staff of the shepherd is an extension of his arm. It's an extension of his voice. The staff reminds the sheep that my shepherd is still with me. 
Or even at night when, they're, when they were sleeping, the shepherd would lay his staff over the side of the sheep as a reminder to the sheep, the shepherd's right here. They could feel the staff, and the staff became this way of remembering that the shepherd is with me. In the darkest valley, we discover our truest identity as the beloved of God, as sons and daughters of as sons and daughters of the creator God, we find our truest identity as, as his. We find our identity no longer in our circumstances or our experiences, and even our experiences or our circumstances from God. We find our identity at the truest depths as in the simple touch of a staff. That that is enough to become the baseline of everything that we understand ourselves to be. And so what is a staff? What's the metaphor? Well, for some in the darkest valley, the staff is just a simple scripture that they cling to. It becomes their breath prayer. The Lord is with me, like from Psalm 23, verse 4. And that becomes the staff, the little poke and prod through the season of the darkest valley that reminds them, my shepherd is with me. But as St. Theodoret of Cyrus would say, you would not be mistaken to read the staff as the saving cross of our Savior. For St. Theodoret, the cross is the staff of the shepherd because it identifies Jesus as the good shepherd to us, the one who lays down his life for his sheep. And when we look at the cross, not only do we see who our good shepherd is, we also get a reminder of our identity as the beloved of the good shepherd. As the darkest valley strips away our identity being in anything else, we find in verse 1, I have what I need, is able to be sustained by nothing more than that he loved me and gave himself for me. It's something that we, we actually don't believe until we get to the bottom of the darkest valley. We may say and sing it, but we experience it. We identify it at the depths of our being when we're there in the middle of the darkest valley. As we wander through the dark night of the soul, the darkest valley, God guides us to find his love as the ample source of our identity, that it is enough to be his. And so this is the form of identification's comfort, is even in little Bible verses or just remembering the cross on a regular basis, we find the comfort that you are with me, that I am yours and you are mine, regardless of what my experiences or my circumstances lead me to believe. So we've talked about the rod and the staff, but I want to talk about one-third comfort in the darkest valley, and that is the pronoun change that happens in the middle of Psalm 23. Slow readers of Psalm 23 have noticed this, that when you read through verses 1, 2, and 3, the primary pronoun and language of the Lord is, He lets me lie down. He leads me. He renews my life. He leads me along the right path for his name's sake. But in verse four, in the context of the darkest valley, the language of the Lord my shepherd now is no longer he but you. The place of suffering and mystery, the place of loss of the darkest valley, the place of confusion is the place of communion. And it, this is ironic because the darkest valley feels like loneliness, but what the darkest valley brings about is a greater longing and knowing of God as you. No longer is he a subject of our prayers. He is a person that we know. And again, this does not mean that God is the author. He's not using the darkest valley to get, get us, but the darkest valley is the place where God becomes you. And I don't mean you. I mean God becomes you to me. 
In the darkest valley, God awakens us to new depths of communion and knowing and longing because we've actually longed for him in a way that we never have before. When you're going through the darkest valley, it's not enough to have a God that's he. You need a God that's you to me. And so that develops something, that that intimacy that then continues throughout the rest of our lives. It's, some, it's the, 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 the souvenir, to use such a, like a small word, of the darkest valley. Is the God that becomes you in the midst of it, and we carry that throughout the rest of our lives. And so this communion becomes another source of comfort, that you are with me, opening up a way for a deeper intimacy than I ever thought I could have imagined before. And so David's comfort in the darkest valley, what he invites our comfort to be in the darkest valley, is in the shepherd's rod, the shepherd's staff, and you. That is his work of purification, identification, and communion. And notice that all of these are not something done by us. So different than the rest of the first stage of discipleship, where you're learning to get your life together, that largely falls on your activity and what you do. You need to get habits in place, repent. You need to be in community. You need to, if you want to follow the shepherd, these are the right paths to, that you must walk on. And here, the darkest valley sets us up for the passive receptivity of God's working that will continue throughout the rest of our lives. Because all of these are something that's done to us, not by us. But with that being said, how, how can we then receive his work when we're going through the darkest valley? Knowing that we don't do this, but how can we set ourselves up to receive the work that God's doing? Verse 4 opens with a reminder and kind of a first step for this. is as he writes, even when I go or even when I walk through the darkest valley. One of the things that we are invited to do in the midst of the darkest valley is to quote an animated fish, just keep swimming. <laughs> just keep going. Just keep walking. In the words of Winston Churchill, when it feels like you're going through hell, keep going. Or to quote Church Father Origen on Psalm 23, verse 4, to walk in the midst of the darkest valley is not the same as to sit in it. In the darkest valley, we are tempted to withdraw. We are tempted to despair or in the midst of those things, we're tempted to distract ourselves. We're tempted to look for the way out, to utilize what one um, spiritual author referred to as spiritual bypassing, where we use theology to argue and pray ourselves out of our experience. And so this happens very regularly within prosperity kind of teaching systems, that God's goal for your life is for you to be wealthy, healthy, and happy. And so if I'm in the darkest valley, then I must not be where God wants me. And so we spiritually bypass and we go, well, this isn't what God wants for me, as opposed to going, no, this is exactly where God has me for me. As St. John of the Cross would say, if we ask for the darkest valley to end, we actually go backward from the work that God wants to do from us, not forward. And so in the darkest valley, what faithfulness looks like is for us to pray, not get me out of this, but get me through this. This is the prayer of the faithful person. The faithful person, perseverance, endurance, goes, man, I know that I have, I have no control over when I get through this, but I'm going to keep going, trusting that my shepherd is. It's a faithful conviction that God is with me and for me, even here. Romans 8 again, that he's working even this together for my good. And so what this faithfulness looks like is a faithful presence to your life, to show up to your Tuesdays, show up to the life that you have. Yes, hold your loss and the pain of what you're going through, but continue to show up. 
Don't take the out of the midlife crises, whether that's the Harley or the divorce or the starting over your life, believing that that will get you out of this. Stick with it. What the church father, the desert fathers and mothers would have said, stay in your cell. Stay put in where you are right now, believing that that's where God's doing the work he has for you. On another side thing is one of the things that the desert fathers would always recommend against. I've been reading a lot of them lately. It's been so good. One of the things they would regularly recommend against, if you want to save your soul, if you want to truly find the life that God has for you, one of the things they would regularly recommend to men and women is stay put where you are. Regularly moving out of the city is a belief that you're going to find the life that you're looking for there. And so rather than following, yes, there's totally calling when God will call you somewhere else. But very regularly, we move from something believing that this is the place that I need to get away from as opposed to that's the place where God's doing his biggest work in me. I am talking about the west side in Los Angeles right now. So be faithfully present to your city. Be faithfully present to your relationships in your community. Don't bow out. Don't get lost in your phone or Animal Crossing or the internet or whatever it may be. Show up to your life believing that's, even though it's the darkest valley right now, that's where God's doing his work. And so part of this faithfulness is not just a faithful presence, but also faithful practices. These faithful practices, not believing that this is the way out of the darkest valley. You don't practice your way out of the darkest valley. God, God is the one that's doing it. But the practices are the way that you keep on following him. You keep walking with him in the midst of it. And so you'll see behind me, we've had six practices that we've been inviting our discipleship groups into over this series, all available at collectivechurch.com slash current series. And so regardless of whether or not you're going through the darkest valley or not, this is what it means to follow him on his right paths. But for those of you, the 20% potentially of you that are in the darkest valley, I would in- encourage you in the season that you're in to, yes, these six and, and more, but I would really in- encourage you to prioritize on the practices that are centered around resting in God in this season. It's as as, as just a reminder of that I, I can rest because my shepherd is here. Was that sleeping? You get your full eight hours at night, Sabbathing and resting on a regular basis and some daily posture of stillness. Again, not because this is gonna fix the darkest valley, but because it just gets your body lining up with the reality that God is the one in charge right now, not me. And so the first thing to do or, or for us to, to walk and wait for the shepherd to work as we keep going, we keep the faith. We stay with it because God is in it. The second thing that we're invited to do in verse four is he says, even when or even though I go through the darkest valley, this is language of acceptance of the darkest valley. Not an endorsement, yippee, I go through the darkest valley, but accept even when I go through it, even though I go through it. Rather than manipulation or control, David invites us into a posture of accepting reality as it is. We accept the reality of the dark even though I go through it. This is an acceptance of the reality of the loss that we've suffered, the grief that we're carrying, the betrayal that we've been wounded by, the hurt that we have, and even even the confusion of the felt absence of God. We just accept that as this is what's going on here. Part of accepting that reality is the accepting of others in our lives. In the parable of the prodigal, the father accepts the craziness of his younger son who wants all the money so he can go off and squander it and do whatever he wants. And so the father doesn't endorse what the son does, but the father accepts his choice and then he prayerfully waits for his son to come to his his senses. 
The story of the prodigal son is a story of a, of a father who has a wayward child. He goes into his own darkest valley, and rather than seeking to control or manipulate his child back, knowing that that would likely sabotage any return ever happening, he waits and he prays. He accepts this is my reality, that even though my child, even though they have done X, and though I don't endorse what they've done, I accept this as the reality of who they are, and so I wait with prayer, accepting this is my reality. And then another avenue of this acceptance of even though is we accept ourselves as the dark valley has revealed us. The good, the bad, and the ugly. And we're able to carry sadness over the big mess that is my messy self without that sadness overwhelming us. And then finally in verse four, the final thing that we do in the darkest valley as the shepherd leads us through is I fear no danger for you are with me. This is language of surrender, it's language of relinquishing, of letting go, and falling back into God's arms. And this is more than just accepting the darkest valley. You can accept something without surrendering it. More than just accepting the darkest valley, we surrender this, we surrender ourselves, we surrender them, we surrender all our lives to God. And we lay it all down at his feet and we look at him in the face and we say, all of this, all of me, all of them, it's yours. You alone are the shepherd. I have no more control over this. And this is the language of dying to ourselves, as Jesus would put it, so that we may live to God. This is what has been referred to as a holy indifference. We become indifferent to anything other than the presence and will of God. As Jesus teaches us to pray in the, uh, uh, the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. We surrender our will and our kingdoms, and we say yours alone be done. We make ourselves wholly indifferent to all but the presence and the will of God in our lives. This surrendering posture is mirrored in the poem of St. Teresa of Avila when she writes, it'll be behind me, let nothing disturb you, let nothing make you afraid. All things pass, but God is unchanging. Patience is enough for everything. You have God, lack nothing. God alone is sufficient. The darkest valley, when we understand it as the place where God is working purification, identification, and communion, the only thing for us to do is to just keep trusting and following the poking and the prodding of the staff with faithfulness, acceptance, and surrender. And so like I said, all are going to go through the darkest valley sooner or later. There are some of you here today that are in it. And I just... I want to tell you from, from the words of David himself, you are not alone. Mm -hmm. And what you're going through does not mean that God has abandoned you, but that he's right here with you, mm -hmm. leading you in a new way to take you deeper than you ever thought possible. Yeah. And part of what this means for us to be the church of the good shepherd is it means that, that we need to understand this as being part of the journey that we're all going to go on means that we need to be able to expect that this is what we're all going to go through sooner or later so that we may hold one another in the darkest valley. And with this being a predominantly younger congregation, the reality is that's probably going to be something that we haven't gone through yet. Which means that most of us, if we stay here long enough, are going to be able to hold and walk with one another in the midst of this all. But the final comfort in the darkest valley is not just that David looks at us and says, me too, and not that we all are going to have to go through, not have to, all of us will get to go through this at some point, but in the midst of the darkest valley, our shepherd looks at us and says, he himself has gone through the darkest valley. 
When Jesus was on the cross, he prayed from Psalm 22, when he prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Jesus on the cross has tremendous loss, betrayal from his closest disciples and being left and abandoned by the rest, taken by the religious leaders of the people that he belonged to, handed over to the enemy and met tremendous loss then on the cross with the felt absence of the presence of God with him. And we know, and Jesus knew, that God was not absent when he was at work there on the cross. But this is Jesus' moment of the darkest valley. This is his moment, his dark night of the soul. And so what that means is that the dark night, the darkest valley, is not just what the shepherd leads you and I through. It's something that he has gone through himself. And so that means that when he lays the staff on your side and says, I'm with you, not only is he saying, I'm with you, but he's saying, I know. I felt it too. And so when we look to Jesus and his own journey to the cross, his own journey through the darkest valley, we find him doing exactly what I've just talked about, being faithful unto death, that he accepted his cross, forgiving those who crucified him, surrendering his will to God in his prayer in the garden where he said, not my will, but yours be done, Father. And as Jesus walked to the cross, It's almost as if we see him living into verse four, praying, even when I go through the darkest valley, I will fear no danger for you are with me, Father. And so Jesus is in many ways, Psalm 23, verse four, in the flesh. He shows us what it looks like to make it through the darkest valley and what awaits us on the other side. Because for Jesus, he went through the darkest valley, not just to show us the way forward, but so that that purification and identification and communion could be available for us in the darkest valley. You see, there through his cross, Jesus is, is the cross is, is, is not just the staff, but it's his rod. Jesus uses his sacrificial laying down his life for us to shatter and forgive all of our compulsions and idols, to drive away all of the demons that, that prey upon our hearts and lives. The cross, as I've talked about, is the staff where Jesus identifies with us as our shepherd in the midst of our sinful wandering and our inner compulsions that we don't even see and name. And he identifies with us as, as the shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep, as, with us as his beloved. And the cross is where the God that we've formerly known in different ways throughout our life, the cross is the place where God becomes the loving and crucified you to our hearts. We know him in a new way. And if all of this wasn't good enough, the, the wonderful gift of Easter Sunday and resurrection is that our good shepherd doesn't just, hasn't just been through the darkest valley and can walk with us to death. It's not just that he's been through us and can purify and have communion and identify with us, but the good shepherd knows the way through the darkest valley that leads to resurrection on the other side. With Jesus as our guiding shepherd, there is on the other side of the grave resurrection. On the other side of the darkest valley, there is what? Verse five, a table set before me with my enemies sitting idly by, an anointing, a, being, a cup that's overflowing and a dwelling in the house of the Lord as long as I live. On the other side of the darkest valley is resurrection life. And you see, this is the great gift of having God, our shepherd, is not just purification, identification, and communion, but resurrection life. Because without this shepherd, the darkest valley is quite literally a dead end for you. But with the good shepherd, the darkest valley is just another one of his paths of righteousness, just another one of his paths towards life, just, just a seedbed for new growth and new life. And so this reality... 
promised and given to us in the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus is what allows us then to praise from the valley, to go back to Psalm 42. And that repeated line, why my soul are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? And then I cut it out, but now I'm bringing it back. Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. In the midst of the darkest valley, the resurrection of our good shepherd allows us to praise in the midst of it all. I will still praise him. I will still put my hope in him, for he is my Savior and my God. Let's pray.